We now return to our fascinating interview and dialogue with author, Vietnam veteran, legal authority, and 50-year peace activist and historian, Brian Wilson from September 10th, 2020, on the issue of U.S. tampering in the internal affairs of third countries. Based on exhaustive studies on this matter, what one discovers is that at the end of the day, you, you know, we are masters at what we accuse other nations of doing when it comes to election tampering in third countries without any evidence that even approaches what you what has been unearthed in the Nicaraguan and a multitude of other countries through U.S. intervention. You know, and right. it's, it's just an overwhelming, well, first, just that we're doing anything in another country. It's all against the law right off the right. bat, but the United States yeah. doesn't pay any attention to the law. The sovereignty, the violation of sovereignty is at its, its apex. Right I mean, it did not, it didn't adhere to the World Court decision of 1986, which came down June 27th, well, that was and a, ordered the yeah. U.S. to immediately, immediately stop funding uh-huh. and training and utilizing the contra forces, and of course, the well, United that, States just ignored it. But see, the right wing, the other side would say, well, wait a minute, Nicaragua withdrew their complaint for reparations, but they didn't, but they, the government that did that was the one that we spent $48 million putting into power. <laughs> you know, it's like... Right, it's, and, it's, yeah, yeah, and yeah. in addition, President Bush said publicly that if the Nicaraguan people did not vote for our candidate, Violeta Shimoto, running on that UNO ticket, that UNO party, that we, in a sense, forced the Nicaraguans come up with a name for a conglomeration of all the parties that were opposed to the Sandinistas, and they called it UNO, United Nicaragua Opposition. And Bush said, if you didn't vote for our candidates, the war will continue. And by that time, the war had been going for 10 years, and at least 30,000 people had died, and maybe 40,000, and many more were maimed for life. Right. And every, almost every family outside of Managua had somebody lost in, in the war or lost an arm or a leg. Mm-hmm. So the Nicaraguans were exhausted. Now, you even said and, in your remarks about the bridges that you were talking about earlier. I thought that was really fascinating because if you put that in the context, you know, 40 bridges that were blown up on one road, you know, they're like saying we just pillage and just twist the arms of countries into accepting what we want or else we will maintain the conditions that are intolerable to live in that you you were explaining that were going on that the contras were facilitating yeah we've we've been doing it for 400 years actually it's a it's part of our history really it's part of our history i'm writing about fake history 400 years of fake u.s history but uh-huh. all these other things that happen are just a little part of that whole history of telling lies about how fantastic the United States is to justify our intervention to steal resources and, and make sure we don't have any opposition governments that are talking about socialism. Well, and your writings are really instructive in the areas of propaganda that you're talking about right now, and I think it's important. Well, it's all about propaganda. Right, right, and I think it's propaganda really, is everything. Information's everything. I, I totally, I totally agree. I wanted to share one thing, and at first, I want to remind folks that we have the great honor of visiting with Vietnam War veteran Brian Wilson. What I wanted to share, Brian, and ask you to comment on, kind of turns to this issue of propaganda that we've already been talking about, just false information that just gets inundated through our informational pathways. 
But in Chile, which is a great parallel, the, before the NED, right? This is back, of course. Yeah, that was, that was big. That was 1973 was the coup, but right, but before the, the, that, we right. there was the 40 committee. That's when this, this is from Frank Church's Senate Intelligence Report, a committee from the uh, intelligence activities to the U.S. Senate, and in that report, they describe the 40 committee as one one of their overriding purposes is to quote exercise political control over covert operations abroad. It considers objectives whether it is in the American, you know, I guess, foreign policy interests. And he goes on to say, in addition to political control, the 40 committee has been responsible for framing covert operations in such a way that they could later be disavowed or plausibly denied by the U.S. government or right. the U.S. president. So in Chile, here is June of, of 1970, and this is from a different source, but it's been cross-referenced. The Committee of 40 approved some $300,000 for anti-Allende propaganda operations. Uh, in September of the same year, 1970, the Committee of 40 approves Ambassador Corey to use influence on the Congressional, the October 24th, 1970, Congressional vote of, with 250000 And then they approved the C Committee of 40, that is, 25000 to support the Christian Democratic candidates in 70. In 71, they approved $1.2 million to purchase radio stations, newspapers, and to support municipal candidates and other political parties. 300000 a couple of months later in 1971 for additional support for the Christian uh, Democratic uh, Party. These numbers go on and on and on up to 73. 77000 100000 to the Christian Democratic Party, another 150,000 in, in May of 71, July of 71, another 150,000. So this deal that went on in Nicaragua was not a, this is like you were saying earlier, this is not an aberration. This is what we do. No, not an aberration. In fact, in, in Chile, mm -hmm. the CIA spent at least $8 million between 1970 and 73 to specifically to destabilize and overthrow Dr. Allende, he was a doctor. He'd been twice elected president. And even though I think there was a CIA study that said that U.S. has no vital national interest within Chile, Allende's Marxist political philosophy was totally unacceptable in the U.S. And of course, there were natural resources there uh, that, that we were yeah. dealing. Yeah, the copper mines, uh, I think. Uh, yeah. Right. And there were also... I think 100 State Department propaganda personnel aimed at, at pre preventing the election of Allende in his earlier campaigns in 58, 62, and 64. Right. So United States is obsessed with making sure that capitalism reigns supreme. That's what's so important about your article. I mean, I know we went all the way back to 1990, and I know you've probably done a lot of work since then. But that 1990 piece is brilliant, in my mind, of laying out how we penetrated civil society in Nicaragua. Just one more thing I wanted you to comment on on the Chile deal is that, it, according to the CIA file that was edited by Robert Borsage and John Marks back in 1976, destabilizing Chile portion of that book, the CIA file, 
They talk about this labor meddling, that funds went into support of strikes and demonstration that plagued the Allende regime. 108 leaders of the White Collar Trade Associations received training from AIFLD, of course, which is the American Institute of Free Labor Development. That's according to to Philip Agee, was set up by the AFL-CIO under the control of the CIA. And in the summer of 1972, they actually, the Confederation of Truck Owners strike received CIA money in order to allow them to pay strike benefits. In other words, we had, we're paying people to strike. We're creating all sorts of nonsense and horrific living conditions in places. And it's then, all about destabilizing yeah, the economy yeah. and destabilizing people's sense of security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, sense of well-being in their own, in their own country. Very good. It's diabolical. And I guess the one thing I just wanted to give you an opportunity to tie all of this together, but I wanted to also share the lies that come out of our government over all of these different, whether we're lying about Vietnam, whether we're lying about what goes on in all these countries. And then if you question it nowadays, they say, who are you going to believe, our intelligence or Russia? You know, well, you can see all of these. But if you look at the history of all of the allegations by our government, perpetuated by our press, that have the absence of evidence to support the claims, it's shocking. And if you question the lack of evidence, it's called a conspiracy theory. When in fact, what we find as time passes through our own in-depth investigative journalism that this show is dedicated to, what we find that the original allegations were the real conspiracy theory most often. But the Hasenfuss thing was really, I thought, insightful because we denied any connection to Hasenfuss. And in, in the 60 Minutes program that was shown in Nicaragua back in, 19, this is like after the shoot down in 86, Wallace says that this is October of 1986 we're talking about now. Right. Uh, he says Nicaraguan's foreign minister, Miguel Descoto, told me that one of the first things that Hasenfuss said and he's talking to Hasenfuss live in this podcast. What well, this isn't my war, and and, and Hasenfuss says, yeah, that's what I said. But as you go on in this article, uh, Hasenfuss says, you know, he was getting paid, that he was getting paid by the company, meaning the CIA, straight out by Wallace. Do you mean the CIA? He said yes, and all of this information in Hasenfuss's own words, he's saying he's being treated very well as a prisoner of war. But the amount of, what, documents that they found on that plane, that 123... Uh, that C-123. Cargo plane. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so incriminating, you know, hard evidence that we never see yeah. when we're told X, Y, or Z. They're laying out for everybody. Can you, with your rich history of, of interventions that have gone on, because in your bio... I was really impressed the number of countries that you have visited and the studying that you've done. You've got a a law degree and have been a 50 years an anti-war activist. You come from a conservative religious family. You were, you know, you were very involved in religion and, and speaking and doing church types of groups and such. Can you just, in the last part of the show, tell us what changed that whole perspective a little bit and, and tie all of the kind of themes that we've been talking about in the show uh, together for us in a way you think is appropriate? Well, in terms of my consciousness and uh, political value changes, they pretty much 
exploded while I was in Vietnam. Before I was in Vietnam, I was, I'd been in law school for two and a half years. I was drafted out of law school uh, when we had a draft. And while I was in law school, I lived in a in the Washington, D.C. jail for ten and a half months as a student. But I slept there and I ate there and I interviewed prisoners every day. That was the first eye-opening experience I had coming from a very rural background, first real experience in reality. And I also attended the weekly black Muslim meetings. I was the only white person in those black Muslim meetings. I was just observing and taking notes, and I was no threat to anybody. But I was I was very naive, and I was learning a lot about racism and, you know, the life of, the, the life of a black person in the United States, which had been... Um, basically for them, had been a police state since the very beginning. But at any rate, by the time I, I got into my training for Vietnam, which was after I'd been in the military two and a half years, the one thing that happened in training was I didn't do the bayonet drill. And that was, that was kind of a shocking thing. I found it to be so repulsive. I wasn't political. You had to stab the the dummy a hundred times and shout kill as loud as you could and they had to, they kept saying louder 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 uh, shout it louder and I just found the whole thing so repulsive I didn't do it I I was trying to get myself to do it but I I just I just didn't do it so that got me in trouble with my commander nonetheless I went to Vietnam with my uh, unit in March of of sixty uh, nine. And while I was there, I was the night security commander of an airbase. But I, I was asked to do a favor for a, a Vietnamese colonel, which was to verify the effects of bombings of targets during the daytime bombing of targets by South Vietnamese pilots trained by the U.S. So it was while I was observing and assessing those bombing of those targets that I discovered that the targets were all inhabited, undefended fishing villages. And I mean, I'd only been in the country five weeks. And I thought this was kind of shocking because I was looking at hundreds of bodies, and most and virtually all napalmed. And so some of them weren't recognizable. But I, after the fifth time I, I went on th those missions, I, I realized, well, I don't need to be doing these missions because the pilots are clearly hitting their targets. I just didn't know that a target was a village. And I thought maybe these were mistakes, intelligence mistakes. So I went to uh, 7th Air Force at Tonsonute Air Base in Saigon and met with our intelligence staff. And I wanted to look at coming reports that included areas where I had observed. And sure enough, in those bombing reports, they identified all the people in those villages that had died as what they called Viet Cong, meaning enemy. Derogatory so, so, term. Yeah, yeah. So despite your intelligence that clearly showed that these were overwhelmingly civilians. Well, my, I, I mean, that's what I observed. They, right. I was in the villages. They, they were. But you were reporting. Uh, you were, and I thought, gee, there must be something I don't know here. Right, right. Were they? Were you reporting that and, back to your? commander that that there are a bunch of civilians there or not what's that you, you mentioned that you went there to these villages at, at the request of a, a commander of some sort of so, a vietnamese commander yeah uh, oh of a vietnamese and so, oh, okay i got you uh it was just uh 
he wanted to, me to do a favor because he didn't have any anybody else that he could trust to go. But you actually so, saw... at any rate, I went yeah. to and met with our intelligence officers yeah. in Saigon, and they said, we sat there for three hours looking at bombing reports, and I said, look, that village, that bombing was a fishing village, with, and I had a, I had census data from 1965 that showed about how many people lived in every village. I said, that was a fishing village, and I, there wasn't even any guns in the village. I mean, you know, I didn't see any lying around. And they said, well, the report shows that there are like 140 V.C. were killed. V.C. was our derogatory term for the National Liberation Front, or the revolutionary Vietnamese. And then another officer said, you know, we've been perplexed because we would get reports of a, a B-52 bombing that destroyed an entire VC unit, which would have which would be identified by letters and numbers. And a few days later, that same unit was observed in another location. And I said, well, now we know what they're doing. They're bombing villages to get body counts and calling them VC. And that was for political reasons. Yeah. And um, we shook on it. We they realized that's what was happening. And that was on April 19th. I'll never forget the date. What what year? April 19th, what year? What year? Yes, what year? Yeah, ni 1969. Okay, thanks. So that was a point at which I knew that we were, we were lying about everything. Everything was an atrocity. Mm -hmm. Everything happening on the ground and every, everything happening from the air yeah. was an atrocity. Thousands of people being killed. Well, at least... I say on an average day in Vietnam would be 1,500 to 2,000 Vietnamese being killed on an average day. And so I then I started studying even more out of anger and realized that the whole war was a lie. And that's kind of really that we were the yeah. that we were the enemy. I was on the wrong side, mm -hmm. and I. I spoke out against the war every day after that. I, I, um, I, didn't, I didn't do anything other than speak out to my superiors that the war is unconscionable, violation of the United Nations Charter, the Hague Convention, and so forth. And they did send me home early, but by the time I got sent home, I was very radicalized. You know, I, we're, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to just indicate that experience that you relate that your own personal experience that led you down the path of where ultimately where you're at today which is still on a path right. is is completely validated by your experience but not just yours or that, many people yeah in ralph mcgee's 1983 book deadly deceits 25 years in the cia he has the same story he was actually an intelligence officer sending intelligence right, he was in the he was a CIA station officer. Right, sending intelligence that's exactly parallel to what you're saying, and they kept on ignoring yeah. his stuff and still putting out this uh, propaganda that and everybody... And he got so depressed, he was suicidal. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, they're, not, they're not taking seriously my reports. Right, exactly. And we are out of time, and I, and I want, before we let you go, I want to, first of all, Thank you for your example and the information you put out in the public's domain that contradicts the narrative that misleads people into complacency. And which covers up the crimes 
against humanity that go unreported by our mainstream press yet are executed under the foreign policy of our nation. Can you share with us if people want to read and access your website information on how to access some of your writings? Well, it's, it's the website is simply brianwilson.com. You got to put two L's in Wilson, so it's B R I a n w i l l s o n dot com, and that has uh, a couple hundred essays on it, and I assume it has references to my books, but I haven't checked lately. My 2018 book was called "Don't Thank Me for My Service: My Vietnam Awakening to the Long History of U.S. Lies." And that was published by Clarity Press. My 2011 book was my psychohistorical memoir called. Blood on the Tracks, The Life and Times of S. Brian Wilson. That was uh, published by PM Press. And then I have a couple other books. Yeah. But the film in 2016 about me was called Paying the Price for Peace, uh, well, the story of S. Brian Wilson. Yeah, and that refers uh, to the horrific and heroic activities that resulted in you being um, run over by a, by a train in California that was carrying armaments and, and such. I don't... I don't mean to bring up bad memories no, and stuff, I, but that's... No, uh, it's, not, yeah. I, I, it's not a bad memory. I don't even remember it. Uh-huh. I, had a, uh, I had a severe skull fracture and brain injury, but I had 45 friends that witnessed it, uh-huh. and uh, I know all about it from them and from the Navy reports, <laughs> and I don't have two legs, which reminds me that I was... Right. You know, my legs were amputated, and... Um, yeah. I got a plate in my skull and a plate in my shoulder, so I've got plenty, plenty of reminders. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was almost, uh, actually, they thought I had died, but uh, for some miracle reason, I, I actually, my heart didn't stop beating, so well, just, here I am, uh, yeah. almost 80 years old, and... <laughs> Still, still talking. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, bro. Still walking on my prostheses and talking. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, man. Um, listen, thank you so much for the reflections, the insights that you provided uh, tonight. We would really like to stay in contact with you, have you back on for sure. Want you to know how much we appreciate the opportunity to have visited with a real American hero that will deny he's an American hero. That's Brian Wilson. Thank you, Brian. Now, you, now, when you talked to Nan McCurdy, she talked about what the U.S. is doing right now in Nicaragua, right? Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, and, okay. And actually, people can oh, access, okay. you know, we'll be able to access both of these shows at pedrogatos.org. Okay. And, and that's the whole purpose of the way we operate here, bringing light into darkness. We try to put together shows and information in a way that it tells a story, too, by different authors that bring empirical information and in, in their own personal experiences to the airwaves. And in that process challenges the Western foreign policy dominated status quo, which inflicts so much human misery. So we appreciate your contributions and look forward to... Well, uh, I appreciate your contribution. <laughs> All right. Hey, that sounds good. Well, thank you, friend. And keep the faith. And just another reminder that we are in our membership drive for the month of September. This is Undercover Greg again. Has anyone noticed any changes in Austin over the last six months? Yes, it has gotten and stayed hotter, but we have also been keeping socially distanced, washing our hands, and wearing our damn masks. For the safety of our beloved staff and programmers and volunteers, KOP has been working from home, 
Each day we craft a way on our own devices to bring you the sound of Austin that you have known and supported for over 25 years. This includes keeping your radio still screaming and news and public affairs shows that bring you timely information and help during the pandemic. A lot has been new and different for all of us. All through September, we are conducting our full membership drive differently, with more of our wonderful content and less of our pitching. Think of it as a unique opportunity to support the station you love, KOOP. Listen in throughout the month as new and different fall membership drive will be morphing into new and different things. But don't hesitate to help us out by going to KOP.org and the safe and secure online donation button. If you do have specific questions or issues related to the virus, please contact us at 512-710-5353 or at COVID-19 at KOOP.org. Remember, stay well, stay safe, stay weird, and stay listening to KOOP. Please stay tuned for our overnight broadcasting which comes up next, you'll have to switch on over to our internet at koop.org. So join Tim for Nobody's Happy Hour. We take you out as we do every night with Land of Naivety. Tell